0: Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, our first headline reads, Reynolds Signs 3% School Funding Increase, Largest Since 2015, Teachers Union Says It's Not Enough, by Caleb McCullough. Iowa K-12 schools will get a 3% funding boost under a bill Governor Kim Reynolds signed into law Tuesday, slightly more than what the governor asked for, but less than what schools were seeking. When taking into account funding reductions lawmakers are expected to make later to Iowa's area education associations, the new law provides a $106.8 million boost to Iowa's public K-12 schools. The amount is higher than the 2.5% increase rentals proposed at the beginning of the session, but it is less than the 4% the Iowa State Education Association had been lobbying for. The bill, Senate File 192, passed the House 59 to 40, with four Republicans breaking with the majority party to vote against the measure. All Democrats voted no, and one Republican, Representative David Seek of Glenwood, did not vote. Representatives Chad Ingalls of Randalia, Megan Jones of Sioux Rapids, Brian Losey of Bondurant, and Thomas Moore of Griswold were the House Republicans who voted against the bill the bill passed in the senate last week mostly along party lines making it eligible for reynolds signature she signed the bill into law tuesday in private this results in a one point one nine billion dollar increase in k twelve education funding since twenty twelve reynolds said in a statement this investment represents our commitment to an excellent education system for all iowans representative craig johnson a republican from independence said he was happy with the funding provided and noted lawmakers had increased school funding by around seven hundred million dollars over the past seven years after republicans took full control of the legislature being predictable with what we do here in iowa is important to us he said this bill will do that being affordable we're going to afford this again this year again this year and next year and the year after that democrats protested the funding in floor debate tuesday saying the proposal was not enough to keep up with inflation and prevent loss of programs and school consolidation. Democrats proposed an amendment that would bump up the funding increase to 5.8%. That amendment failed 39 to 60. I know when we were passing and talking about the voucher bill, we had plenty of money, and now all of a sudden this has to fit in our budget, complained Representative Sharon Steckman, Democrat of Mason City. Our half a million kids need to fit in our budget. Republican lawmakers in January passed a bill which Reynolds signed into law in a public ceremony that allows parents to take advantage of taxpayer-funded education savings accounts valued at the state's full per-pupil allocation to pay for a private school education. The program is estimated to cost $106.9 million in its first year and $345 million a year once fully implemented. The ISEA, the union representing public school teachers, ridiculed the decision to spend millions on private schools while increasing the state aid to public schools by 3%. It is smoke and mirrors for them to claim our public schools are receiving more funding than ever before, union president Mike Boronic said in a statement. Public school funding has not kept up with the rising cost of inflation for 12 of the last 13 years. Inflation coupled with fixed costs means that no matter the ebb and flow of a student population, Our schools need more funding to provide a robust and healthy student environment. Also on today's front page, max security inmates to move from Animosa. Move to make prison medium security comes only two years after fatal attack by Emily Anderson. Two years after prisoners tried to break out of the Anamosa State Penitentiary by bludgeoning a nurse and correctional officer to death, the state plans to transfer out some of the most dangerous prisoners there and decrease the prison security rating the animosa facility currently holds both medium and maximum security level inmates but the majority of inmates designated as maximum security will be moved to the iowa state penitentiary in fort madison which becomes the state's only maximum security prison according to the iowa department of corrections the corrections department did not respond to emails and phone calls seeking clarification about how many inmates will be transferred and when and one of the movies related to a safety review of Iowa's prisons conducted after the Anamosa escape attempt, a report that, except for a summary and timeline, has not been made public. Now that the COVID-19 pandemic has ended and in conjunction with Iowa's prison population declining, IDOC has the bed space and resources needed to safely conduct and implement this transition, Department of Corrections Director Beth Skinner said in a news release. Data from the department, however, showed that the state's prison system Tuesday was over capacity by nearly 13.7%, that there were 7,946 inmates Tuesday, but capacity for 6,990. Both the Anamosa Prison, with 915 inmates, and the Fort Madison Prison, with 721, were over capacity Tuesday, according to the department, although not all of Iowa's nine prisons were. On March 23, 2021, two Animosa inmates, serving time for robbery and other charges, checked out hammers and a metal grinder under the guise of fixing something in the prison infirmary. They used the hammers to kill Nurse Lorena Schulte, 50, and Officer Robert McFarland, 46, and took another employee hostage briefly and seriously wounded another inmate. They attempted to use the metal grinder to cut through bars on a window before they were caught. Inmates Michael Dutcher and Thomas Woodard pleaded guilty to two counts each of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder and second-degree kidnapping and will spend the rest of their lives in prison. They were both transferred from the Animosa prison and changes were made to enhance security at the facility, including removing some of the apprenticeship programs available to inmates. Schulte's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the state, the Animosa prison, the corrections department, Iowa Prison Industries, and the prison's warden at the time. On Tuesday, the defendants filed a motion seeking to have the suit dismissed, arguing in part that the parents' only remedy is to file a claim for workers' compensation benefits, not a lawsuit. The Corrections Department did not reference the 2021 attack as a reason for removing maximum security prisoners from Anamosa. This decision was made after much consideration and detailed planning, and we feel certain that now is the time to make this transition. By transitioning Anamosa State Penitentiary to a strictly medium security facility, the Iowa Department of Corrections can focus on providing even further treatment opportunities for the system's medium custody inmates, building upon two years of reducing Iowa's recidivism rate, Skinner said in a statement. At our last front page article, UI has withdrawn $41 million from P3 Endowment Fund. Funds value up to $998.7 million, but continues to fluctuate, by Vanessa Miller. Through the end of September, the University of Iowa had withdrawn nearly $41 million from an endowment fund it created in 2020 with $985.9 million the campus received as part of a public-private partnership for the operation of its sprawling utility system. A big chunk of that $40.9 million endowment distribution to date, $35.2 million, has been disseminated across campus via one- to three-year grants supporting projects, programs, and initiatives, aligned with UI's strategic priorities, according to a September financial report. The remaining $5.8 million has helped UI fulfill its obligation to its new private partner to cover utility and operating costs. Including those withdrawals and market fluctuations, the total value of the fund as of September was $998.7 million, up to $12.8 million from where it started, but down 27.3 million from its value in June 2021, when the fund early on was reporting a $147.7 million net worth in net worth increase after just one year. In September, according to the most recent financial report, the fund's net worth increase from inception had dropped to $53.8 million. The market value of the UI Strategic Initiatives Fund can fluctuate, UI spokesman Chris Brewer said. It is currently lower due to additional distributions to the university and worldwide issues, inflation, pandemic wars, etc., impacting the financial markets and performance of the fund. The endowment fund stemmed from a landmark 50-year $1.165 billion deal for the private operation of the sprawling UI utility system. In exchange for that upfront lump payment, the winning private bidder landed exclusive rights to operate the university's utility system for the next five decades, requiring UI to pay a $35 million annual fixed fee, tens of millions more annually to cover operation and maintenance costs, and any additional expenses for things such as capital improvements and fuel. The winning bid came from a group of foreign and U.S.-based businesses and individuals, including Meridian Infrastructure North American Corporation, NG North America Inc., and Hannon-Armstrong's Sustainable Infrastructure Capital, Inc., which collectively call themselves the UI Energy Collaborative. Already, the deal has come under public scrutiny after UI refused to disclose the private investors who made possible the $1.165 billion upfront payment, even for a state audit. Only after the Iowa Supreme Court weighed in did UI provide the state auditor with a list of investors, including Iowa-based companies Transamerica, principal global investors, and Athene, formerly of Des Moines. The auditor's years-long investigation questioned whether lawmakers should have more oversight of public-private partnerships at its universities, given the UI deal amounts to the largest financial obligation ever held by Iowa taxpayers. While the legislature long ago delegated the authority to issue debt to the Board of Regents, it is uncertain they anticipated debt or long-term obligations of this magnitude, auditor Rob Sand wrote in his audit released in December. It seems inappropriate for a government department or agency to take on the largest financial obligation ever held by Iowa taxpayers at the governor's general suggestion. Such practices lead to a lack of accountability and transparency. Sand also advised UI to include more information on its website and in its financial reports related to the endowment fund. We will carefully consider the recommendations made by the auditor in the report according to the UI and Board of Regents' response to his findings. The p3 is a great opportunity for the university and we look forward to its continued success a month later and just three years into the partnership more questions and cracks in the deal emerged when the ui energy collaborative sued ui for breaching its obligations in the federal lawsuit filed in january the private utilities operator accused ui of refusing to pay money it owes rescinding approval for certain utility system repairs Refusing to file casualty insurance claims and demanding payment for unplanned utility outages, even though the university's representatives participated in the very meetings and discussions planning for those events. UI officials have not yet filed a formal response with the court. In a separate September report on the Public Private Partnership, or P3 for short, the university described in more detail how it has distributed the $35 million in grants and to 20 interdisciplinary projects. Project activities must be outside of scope or unable to be supported through the current budget model, according to a list of criteria used in selecting grant recipients. Other criteria include the prospect of longevity beyond the funding period and high-level impact across multiple strategic priorities, aligning with one or more UI goals, objectives or strategies. For the 2022 and 2023 budget years, UI received 78 grant applications from across campus now here are some articles of local interest from inside the paper wilson middle listed as iowa endangered property historic buildings in mount vernon vinton north liberty also make the list by grace king wilson middle school in cedar rapids has been added to the list of the most endangered properties in iowa by a statewide historic preservation group a facilities planning committee for the cedar rapids community school district is studying whether to demolish wilson and build a new middle school in its place which is what initially was proposed, or to renovate the building. The initial cost estimate to build a 600-student school on the Wilson site is $60.8 million, according to board documents. The plan hinges on district voters approving a $312 million bond referendum, possibly in a September vote, for a school facility master plan. Renovation or construction on the Wilson site would begin spring 2027 and be completed by late summer 2029, according to an anticipated timeline. The school is one of six properties designated by Preservation Iowa as the 2023 Most Endangered. The group brings to the public's attention the risks to a designated historic property and advocates advocates for preservation. Other eastern Iowa properties on the list are William Fletcher King Memorial Chapel in Mount Vernon, Iowa, Canning Company Seed House in Vinton, and George House in North Liberty. Wilson was built to last for generations, according to Preservation Iowa. It was constructed in 1924 and is the last of four iconic junior high schools built in Cedar Rapids in the 1920s. The historic 1882 King Chapel on the campus of Cornell College in Mount Vernon was closed after the 2020 derecho caused considerable damage to the structure. The roof was damaged, four main support trusses were fractured by the winds, and the west wall was pushed out an estimated eight inches, according to Preservation Iowa. Seed House, built in 1927, was condemned by the city of Vinton and currently is in danger of being demolished, according to Preservation Iowa. The current owners have worked to cover unprotected windows, close ground-level openings, and remove failed roofing and beams. George House in North Liberty also is in danger of being demolished, according to Preservation Iowa. Built in 1892, it is one of the few houses built in the 1800s remaining in North Liberty. Other properties designate, designated by Preservation Iowa as most endangered this year are the Hasty Farmhouse in Carlisle and a house at two hundred seven Lafayette Street in Waterloo. Judge denies new lawyers in CR homicide. Arthur Flowers attorneys says he doesn't trust say he doesn't trust them by Trish Mahaffey. Two lawyers for a Cedar Rapids man charged with beating a woman to death with a wooden board asked a judge Tuesday to withdraw from the case because their client wouldn't cooperate and doesn't trust them. Adrian Houghton, lawyer for first-degree murder defendant Arthur Flowers, 62, said Flowers has told him and his other lawyer, Nakedra Tucker, that he doesn't trust them and thinks Houghton is working against him. During the hearing, Houghton said Flowers told a state psychiatrist that he wanted different lawyers and wouldn't work with them. Because of the significant breakdown in communication, Houghton said they wanted to withdraw. Assistant Lynn County Attorney Jordan Scheer, in resisting the motion, said Houghton and Tucker are competent attorneys and there isn't time to reset the case unless Flowers waives his right to a speedy trial. Shire said Scheer said Flowers was asked last week by 6th Judicial District Judge Fay Hoover if he wanted to change lawyers, but Flowers, after the court said he was restored to competency, confirmed he didn't. The prosecution has rushed, rushed to make sure witnesses would be available Tuesday when the trial is set to begin. During Tuesday's hearing Hoover asked Flowers if he wanted to stay with his lawyers and he said it's too late in the day to change horses now Hoover denied the change and encouraged Flowers and his lawyers to work together Flowers was found incompetent last July by a psychiatrist at the Iowa Medical and Classification Center in Coralville he was sent for treatment and found competent in January to be tried in the fatal assault of Emily Leonard 22 of Cedar Rapids on April 2nd 2022 C.R. Man Gets 25 Years in Assault Stabbing Case by Trish Mahaffey A Cedar Rapids man who hit his ex-girlfriend's boyfriend with a baseball bat multiple times and stabbed him has been sentenced to up to 25 years in prison. Bernie Karsten Brown, 38, originally charged with attempted murder, pleaded guilty in November to willful injury, resulting in serious injury while using a dangerous weapon. He used a baseball bat to hit Branley Nicosi in the head multiple times February 12, 2022. The attack caused skull fractures, a brain bleed, and other life-threatening injuries, according to a criminal complaint. The man also had a stab wound in his back. When Brown was arrested last year, he also had an outstanding warrant related to an incident in December 2020 when a woman said he choked her and threw her up against a wall. He then fled from police, driving about 60 miles per hour in a 25-mile-per-hour zone, according to a criminal complaint. On Tuesday, he also was sentenced for domestic abuse assault, strangulation with bodily injury, and possession with intent to deliver crack cocaine. After Brown was arrested in the domestic abuse and willful injury case, police found a digital scale, marijuana, and 20 pounds of individually wrapped cocaine in his possession, according to a criminal complaint sixth judicial district judge chad kepros on tuesday sentenced brown to ten years each on the willful injury and possession with intent charges five years on the domestic abuse charge the sentences will run consecutively for up to twenty-five years in prison he must serve a minimum of five years because a dangerous weapon was used Ernst screen all cars at u s mexico border by tom barton back from a tour of the san diego mexico border and meetings with Mexican officials, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst on Tuesday called a Democratic President Joe Biden to crack down on the flow of fentanyl entering the United States, including having every vehicle entering the southern border screened by a drug-sniffing police dog. Ernst spoke with reporters after returning from a visit with Iowa Republican U.S. Representatives Randy Feenstra and Marionette Miller-Meeks to the San Diego sector of the U.S.-Mexico border and to Mexico City. Ernst called the Port of San Diego the world's busiest land border crossing, the epicenter of fentanyl trafficking. The lethal drugs that come through this sector of the border feed right into the Midwest, said Ernst, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. It is our joint responsibility with Mexico to bring an end to the fentanyl crisis and the resulting cartel violence. President Biden must present a clear plan that meets the challenges at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a complicated problem, but complicated can't mean complacency. Ernst said the delegation met with members of the National Border Patrol Council, which outlined the difficulties border agents are facing curbing illegal border crossings, including outdated surveillance technology and a shortage of agents and canine units. Right now our Border Patrol is demoralized, Ernst said. They feel like Uber drivers and paper pushers instead of frontline agents who are pushing back on cartel activity and drug and human smuggling. Border Patrol told us they're seeing a trend of even more gotaways—people that illegal cross the boor, illegally cross the border and are never caught—than people who were actually apprehended in the previous year. Parents, lawmakers decry obscene schoolbooks. By Caleb McCullough. Iowa parents and conservative activists said in a hearing with state lawmakers this week there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for schoolbooks they find obscene and divisive. In an Iowa House Government Oversight Committee meeting Monday evening, the parents, many of them activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, read passages from books they found offensive and said they faced onerous and difficult procedures when trying to challenge the book in their local school districts. Nearly all the books presented dealt with LGBTQ characters and people of color. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions, and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. You cannot distribute obscene material to children anywhere else, said Pam Gronow, a parent from Urbandale. Why would we allow our schools to be exempted from this? For something to be considered obscene under Iowa law, it has to lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There also is an exception for use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and libraries. Mandy Gilbert of Johnston, who raised concerns about The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian and The Hate You Give, said she wanted parents to be informed that their children were able to read books that she considered obscene. We did not ask for these two books to be removed from the school library, but questioned why they were hand-selected by teachers to read without parents knowing the explicit language, she said. Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, held a forum with Moms for Liberty last week where she suggested books that are removed by one school should be restricted at all other schools in the state. Under the proposal, a book that has been removed from one school library would be available for students at other schools, but only with a parent's written permission. Some Republicans on the committee suggested there should be age restrictions on some books in a school library similar to a movie rating that would require a parent's consent before being checked out we don't allow children under seventeen into r-rated movies representative steve holt republican of denison said and we're not banning these movies we've made a decision that young people as a minimum should have parental consent before being exposed to adult material but democrats contended there already are processes in place to challenge materials in iowa schools and questioned the implications of further restricting material lindsey james democrat of dubuque and the ranking member of the committee said being too quick to restrict a book could conflict with the rights of students and of parents in the district who did not have problems with the books presented. What I am concerned with is upholding constitutional free speech for our children, making sure that your parental right to choose is upheld, and that, as a mom with children in my districts, in both elementary and middle school, that I would have the right to choose that my child what my child would be exposed to, she said. Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican of Indianola, and chair of the committee, said the committee planned to hold a hearing with administrators and teachers to gain their perspective. Several people showed up in opposition to the speakers at the meeting, sporting t-shirts, extolling banned books, and supporting teachers. Brenda Schumann, a former teacher from Des Moines who attended the hearing, said the proposals from Reynolds and other Republicans would place restrictions on children across the state. What happened to local control? What happened to parents, she asked. They think they should be controlling every kid. Bill would remove some rules for public schools. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill eliminating reporting requirements and other regulations on public K-12 schools. The bill proposed by Governor Kim Reynolds covers several provisions that a representative from Reynolds' office said would remove burdensome and trivial requirements on schools. The bill eliminates the requirement for schools to develop an annual comprehensive improvement plan. Allows school districts to hire a person who has previously worked as a public librarian for the position of teacher librarian. Prohibits schools from offering more than five days or 30 hours of instruction online per year. Provides flexibility for schools contracting with community colleges to teach high school courses. Allows schools to teach sequential units of a subject in the same classroom. Loosens educational standards required to graduate and removes requirements for certain instruction extends extra funding for school districts that share administrators and staff. This proposal will eliminate redundant reporting, allow greater flexibility in course credits, and encourage schools to offer options best suited to their students, said Molly Severn, a representative with Reynolds' office. However, some lobbyists and education representatives were concerned that the loosening of requirements would lead to subpar education for Iowa students. Michelle Cruz, a teacher librarian from Cedar Rapids, said the skill set for teacher librarians is distinct from public librarians. If the intention of these proposed changes is to address the shortage of teacher librarians within the state, we need to have a a conversation about the reasons current teachers are not choosing to go on to seek certification as a teacher librarian, she said. The bill also requires students to take two units of a foreign language rather than four and removes the requirement that schools include instruction about HIV and AIDS. House Study Bill 119 passed out of a subcommittee with only Republican support. It now is eligible for consideration by the full House Committee on Education. CR Public Library receives top prize. Annual Award recognizes North American Library's impact on its community. My Marissa Payne. The Cedar Rapids Public Library has received the Jerry Klein Community Impact Prize to recognize the library's influence on the community. The award was presented January 30th during a celebration at the American Library Association's LibLearnX Conference in New Orleans, according to a news release. The Jerry Klein Community Impact Prize was developed in partnership by Library Journal and the Gerald M. Klein Family Foundation. Created in 2019, the prize recognizes the public library as a vital community asset and is given to one library in North America each year to acknowledge that library's impact in its community. The prize includes a $250,000 award to the Cedar Rapids Public Library from the Gerald M. Klein Family Foundation. The library also was featured on the November cover of Library Journal. Cedar Rapids Public Library has made a huge impact through its close connections with civic leadership and community, exactly what this prize seeks to spotlight and honor, Jerry Klein, CEO of the Gerald M. Klein Family Foundation, said in a statement. The award highlights initiatives such as the library's mobile technology lab, as well as community and civic partnerships that broaden the library's reach based on its three strategic pillars of literacy, access, and inclusion. We are a stronger library because of the relationships we have with our city and county leadership, Library Director Dara Schmidt said. We are a stronger community because of the support our nonprofits and library give each other. We're grateful this award recognizes the value of those partnerships. Schmidt said the money awarded the library will go toward furthering the library's strategic goals, including the development of a permanent West Side library. Volunteering to Affirm a Career Path. Josh Cissé connects with medical staff while helping others, by Galen Hawthorne. In America, volunteering is mostly favored by members of the older generations. Retirees often enjoy it as a change of pace from their lifelong careers. However, for Josh Cissé, volunteer opportunities are a key to shaping his future. Sisei, 22, started volunteering at St. Luke's Hospital as an emergency department triage volunteer in 2018 when he was a senior at Jefferson High School in Cedar Rapids. It came after a placement at the Hiawatha Care Center through the workplace learning connection. At the time, he was interested in the medical field, but he wanted a way to try it out before dedicating his life to it. I wanted to build experience, see what I wanted to do, and what i really enjoy, he said. Since his first day at St. Luke's, he has shown unstoppable work ethic and energy. As a member of emergency room triage, his responsibilities include directing guests to their rooms and assisting the registration specialist as needed. Then he became a wayfinder, escorting patients and guests around the building for appointments and exercise. Once the emergency department patient ambassador role became available, CSE was first in line. Patient ambassadors serve as an additional touchpoint for patients and visitors, ensuring that their needs are communicated effectively to the staff at the hospital. He said that sometimes being present as a caring volunteer encourages individuals to really open up. When you put on a uniform like a doctor or a nurse, sometimes the patients are scared, he said. When I go in, they're so comfortable with me that some of them tell me things about their condition they won't tell a doctor. Then we talk about how to share that with the staff. Around St. Luke's, he's known as a trustworthy, reliable, and capable volunteer. Josh is a prime example of what makes a great volunteer. Josh goes above and beyond to make sure that patients feel listened to and taken care of, according to his 2022 nomination for a Governor's Volunteer Award. It's a good way to value your time, Cissé said, because you help to change lives. Beyond the social good, Cissé finds his own unique rewards in volunteering. It helps me build connections. I want to become a medical doctor, so I always have conversations with the doctors and nurses when we have downtime. It also helps with my communication skills, he said. Cissé's family emigrated from Sierra Leone in Western Africa in 2016. We do speak English in Sierra Leone, but I want to learn more about the American culture and how you communicate, he said. The more I speak with Americans, the more I construct my English better. Cissé was honored with a Governor's Volunteer Award in 2022 for his efforts. I met Kim Reynolds there, Cissé said. Volunteering let, let me meet a respectable figure like that. If I was just at home, I wouldn't have been able to do that. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 8, 2023, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Wallace R. Wally Krause, 90, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away on Monday, February 6, 2023, at Meadowview Memory Care, Cedar Rapids. Visitation, 4-7 to p.m., Thursday, February 9, 2023, at Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 11 a.m., Friday, February 10, 2023, at the funeral home. Burial with military honors will be held at Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Wally was born May 10, 1932, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Floyd and Marguerite Newman Krause. He graduated from Wilson High School and earned his B.A. degree at Coe College in Cedar Rapids. Wally was united in marriage to Barbara Moat on December 23, 1952, at Cedar Christian Church in Cedar Rapids. He honorably served his country in the United States Army during the Korean conflict. Wally worked at St. Luke's Hospital as purchasing agent, Americana Nursing Center as an administrator, then Eli Lilly Pharmaceuticals in Indianapolis, Indiana, before returning to Cedar Rapids where he worked at Kirkwood Community College as the director of Con Ed until retirement. Wally was a huge baseball fan. He loved to play and be a spectator. Wally pitched for Coe College and Link Belt Speeder in the Industrial League during the 1950s and supported every Cedar Rapids semi-pro team from the Rockets to the Colonels. Wally served as president of the Cedar Rapids Baseball Club and was very instrumental in the construction of the new Memorial Stadium and Veterans Memorial. Memorials may be directed to the family and will be used to honor Wally and continued support for youth sports education and dementia research. Please share a memory at murdochfuneralhome.com. Linda Kathleen Lindsay of Cedar Rapids passed away January 29, 2023, in Newport Beach, California. Her Christmas visit there turned into a month-long battle with gallbladder cancer. Linda was born June 2, 1949, to Keith and Leona Severson Kennison of rural Northwood, Iowa. Her girlhood on the farm and growing up in a small town gave her a strong work ethic and an appreciation of a simple life. Later, she played alto sax in the bands at Northwood Kensett High and North Iowa Area Community College. It was in the NIACC band room that she dropped her music folder at the feet of a socially awkward tuba player, Gary Lindsay. They became friends, worked together in the physics department, and began dating. Linda and Gary went on to UNI, where they married after their junior year. Both graduated with teaching degrees in 1971. Linda and Gary came to Cedar Rapids for Gary's job at Kennedy High. After working as a teacher associate for several years, Linda began working in program administration for Rockwell Collins in 1979, retiring in 2014. Visitation with the family will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th. A celebration of life service will be Saturday, February 18th at 10 a.m. with a light luncheon following. Both will be held at St. Paul's United Methodist Church, 1340 3rd Avenue, Southeast, Cedar Rapids. Linda requested that memorials be made to support the music ministry at St. Paul's or St. Cat Rescue and Adoption Center in Cedar Rapids. Interment of ashes will occur in September in northern Iowa. David F. Scott, 77, of Hiawatha, Iowa, passed away at Mercy Hallmar on Sunday, February 5, 2023, following a long illness. David Frederick Scott was born April 18, 1945, in St. Louis, Missouri, the son of Harold and Esther Goodale Scott. He graduated from Roosevelt High School in Des Moines in 1963. David served in the U.S. Army in the Canal Zone in Panama during the Vietnam War from 1960 to 19, 1968 to 1970. He then attended and graduated from the University of Iowa, where he played in the marching band and was drum major his last two years. He worked as an IT engineer for Rockwell Collins for over 30 years. David was a 40-plus year member of the Barbershop Harmony Society, enjoyed music, traveling, and spending his winters in Arizona the last six years. His most favorite times were attending his grandchildren's many sporting events. A funeral service celebrating David's life will be held at 2 p.m. Thursday, February 9th, 2023, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment with military rights will be held in Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery, Garden of Serenity. Linda K. Rogers, 73, of Springville, Iowa, passed away on Monday, February 6, 2023, at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, February 13, 2023, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, Iowa, where a visitation will begin one hour prior to the service burial will follow at Springville Cemetery in Springville. Linda was born December 23, 1949 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the daughter of Ivan and, Mag- and Madeline Pollock Nielsen. She was a 1968 graduate of Springville High School and went on to attend Kirkwood Community College. Linda worked as a registered nurse for St. Luke's Hospital, Solon Nursing Center, and Hallmark Nursing Home in Mount Vernon, Iowa. After nursing, Linda worked at a hotel for a time and later at Amana Refrigeration. She was a member of the Springville American Legion Number no. 331 Auxiliary and helped as a longtime historian. Please share a memory of Linda at com. Muriel Jeanie Keith passed away peacefully at her Hiawatha home, surrounded by her children, on February 6, 2023. She was known for her tremendous generosity, quick wit, dry sense of humor, and love of people and laughter. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Hospice of Mercy, at Muriel Jean's request. Please share your support and memories with Jeannie's family on her tribute wall at stuartbaxter.com. Irwin Irv C. Vatraback, 86, of Cedar Rapids, died Sunday, February 5, 2023, at the Dennis and Donna Older of Hospice House of Mercy. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 10, 2023, at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, located at 2121 Bowling Street Southwest where there will be a 3.30 p.m. prayer service. Funeral Mass will be 10 a.m. Saturday, February 11, 2023 at St. Jude's Catholic Church, with burial to follow in St. Patrick's Catholic Cemetery, Fairfax. Irwin was born September 26, 1936, in rural Johnson County, the son of ben and Libby Vostral Votrebek. He graduated from Amana High School, class of 1955. Irv met his future wife, Marlene L. Swenka, when they were both 18 and just knew she was the one. They were united in marriage on June 23, 1956 at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church. He worked for over 33 years at Rockwell Goss Manufacturing until his retirement in 1996. Memorials may be directed to the family. Online condolences may be expressed at broschapel.com. Mary Bernice Knapp-Knoeller, 70, of Marion, Iowa, passed away on Sunday, February 5, 2023. A funeral service will be held on Wednesday, February 8, 2023, at 11 a.m., with a visitation two hours before service at Murdoch Funeral Home in Marion. You, Paul McConaughey, 82, passed away at our home in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on Sunday, February 5, 2023, surrounded by our loving family. You were born to Dale and Mildred McConaughey on August 30th, 1940, and graduated from Morley High School, where you played basketball and they called you the Morley Flash. You started working at Square D in November of 1959 and worked there until you retired in December of 2002. After seeing you for the first time at Square D, I knew you were the man I was going to marry. That came true on August 18th, 1962. You will now be our special guardian angel. A memorial visitation will be held at the Prairie Bible Church, 9255 Atlantic Drive, Southwest Cedar Rapids, on Saturday, February 11th, 2023, from 10 a.m. to noon. A memorial service will be held at 12.30 p.m. with Pastor Craig Peters officiating. A luncheon at the church will follow. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the family. Condolences may be left at cedarmemorial.com. Lorraine Renee. Lloyd, 88, of rural Iowa City, died Sunday, February 5, 2023, at Atrium Village in Hills, Iowa. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, February 10, 2023, at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Hills, with burial at Memory Garden Cemetery in Iowa City. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday, followed by a rosary at 6 p.m. at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be made to Iowa City Animal Care and Adoption Center or St. Joseph Catholic Church. To share a memory or condolence with her family, please visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Floraine Renee Belts was born November 10, 1934 in Iowa City, Iowa, the daughter of Vincent and Lucinda Smith Belts. She attended Iowa City Schools, graduating from City High School. She later enrolled at Kirkwood Community College, graduating with a first class in the registered nursing program. She also attended the University of Iowa. For over 27 years, she worked at the Veterans Administration Hospital, most of those years as an operating room nurse. On June 2, 1953, she married her sweetheart, Olin L. Lloyd Tex. In later years, the couple spent winters in Arizona, Texas, and Arkansas, making new friendships that would last a lifetime. Ruth Elaine Dripps, 87, of Marion, Iowa, passed away on Sunday, February 5, 2023, at Summit Point Assisted Living Facility. Funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 11, 2023, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, conducted by her cousin, Pastor James Stewart. Visitation will begin one hour prior to services. Burial will follow at Springville Cemetery in Springville, Iowa. Ruth was born on April 22, 1935 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the daughter of George and Gladys Howland Dripps. She lived on a farm and through the third grade went to a one-room schoolhouse. Ruth graduated from Marion High School in 1953, Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri in 1955, and the University of Iowa with a bachelor's degree in commerce in 1957. She worked in the office at Armstrong's department store in Cedar Rapids for 33 years. Her passion was showing American saddlebred horses and horse shows and spending one week in Louisville, Kentucky in August at the World's Championship Horse Show for several years. Ruth was inducted into the Iowa Horseman's Hall of Fame. She was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Memorials in Ruth's memory may be directed to the Marion Independent School Foundation. Please share a memory of Ruth at murdochfuneralhome.com. Lawrence Larry Henry Spurslagge of Strawberry Point passed away February 5, 2023, at University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City, Iowa, with family by his side. He was born on May 16, 1941, in Earlville, Iowa, to Frank and Magdalene Svorslagge. He attended school in Earlville and began working on farms in the area at a young age. He served in the Navy before returning home to be united in marriage to Alice Gudenkauf of Ryan, Iowa, on June 20, 1961. He farmed in the Lamont and Winthrop areas for 20 years, then pursued a career in aviation in the 80s. Getting his A&P license, he worked many places in the U.S. He continued to get his DAR license, working as an independent contractor traveling the world. Visitation will be Friday, February 10, 2023 from 4 to 7 p.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Strawberry Point and 9 to 10 a.m. on Saturday, February 11th. A Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 11th at St. Mary's with burial at St. Albert Cemetery, Lamont, Iowa. Online condolences may be left at iowacremation.com. Iva E. Reihard Burkett, age 86, of Wellman, died Friday, February 3rd, 2023 at the Parkview Care Center in Wellman. Iva Eileen Reinhardt was born April 11, 1936, in Jefferson County, Iowa, the daughter of Clarence and Blanche Statler Reinhardt. She married Ronald J. Burkett on April 8, 1963, in Coralville. She stayed home and raised her family, had worked as a home health aide, and had been a cook at the Radisson Hotel and Iowa City High School. Iva was a member of many bowling leagues in the area for many years. She liked the game of pool, enjoyed her gardens, and going to garage sales, but most important to her was her family. Services celebrating her life will be held at a later date. To share a thought, memory, or condolence, please visit Gayanchia Funeral Home and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Berdine Fern Whitehead, 96, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, died Monday, February 6, 2023. A visitation will be held from 1 to 2 p.m. on Friday, February 11, 2023, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. A funeral service will follow at 2 p.m. on Friday at the funeral home with Pastor Sherry Schwab officiating. Burial, Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Berdine was born August 18, 1926, in Hollandale, Minnesota, the daughter of Murray and Ethel Stuart Lenhart. She graduated from New Sharon High School. Berdine played basketball in high school and went to the state championship. She was united in marriage to Jack G. Whitehead on February 6, 1943, in Lancaster, Missouri. Berdine dedicated her life to raising her children. She was a longtime member of New Disciples Church in Cedar Rapids. Burdeen was a lifetime Iowa Hawkeyes fan and loved watching them play or listening to their games on the radio. She especially loved cheering on grandchildren at their sporting events. Memorials may be directed to New Disciples Church, 610 32nd Avenue Southwest, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, 52404. Please share a memory of Burdeen at MurdochFuneralHome.com. It is with extreme sorrow that we are sharing the passing of Judith Mary Tanner Lutz Christ, wife, mother, grandmother, and good friend to so many. Judy was taken way too soon by cancer, which she defeated 20 years ago, but just wasn't strong enough to beat it again. Judy was successful as a human resources manager at Green Bay Metro Sewerage District, Mercy Medical Center at Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and Appleton Medical Center at Appleton, Wisconsin. Judy resided at Kelly Lake, Suring, Wisconsin, at both her home and the Lutz family cottage. Judy spent the winter with her husband traveling the southern states trying to stay warm. Instead of gifts, the family asks you send a prayer to our Lord to save a special place for a special person. Visitation will be held after 4 p.m. Friday, February 10, 2023, at Jones Funeral Service in Oconto Falls, Wisconsin, with a 6 p.m. memorial service to follow. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to today's editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Mark McCoy of Cedar Rapids. The headline reads, Who will determine what topics are divisive? Republican State Representative Steve Holt of Denison is proposing legislation fining schools for discussing divisive concepts in classrooms. Will Holt be the final arbiter of what's divisive? How about giving that responsibility to Moms for Liberty or similar groups? will what's divisive be divined and codified or to paraphrase supreme court justice potter stewart will know it when i see it might i was kids, still get a chance to explore the themes of farewell to Manzmar, manzanar to kill a mockingbird 1984 bury my heart at wounded knee the grapes of wrath or roots or are the issues they address too divisive Perhaps curricula based on the vision of such classics as Ozzie and Harriet and leave it to Beaver would paint a more palatable and calming vision of America for our schools. It would seem that Holt believes critical thinking is a bad thing for kids. Cogito ergo sum? Nah, better for young islands to sit down, shut up, and learn what they're told to learn. Counterintuitively, Republicans in Des Moines might want to include Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale on their list of acceptable materials. Its vision of Gilead, an American fascist theocracy, can serve as a roadmap to a less divisive Iowa. And that is a letter from Mark McCoy of Cedar Rapids in today's Gazette. There's a guest column written by Nicholas Johnson. The, hi- the headline reads, Right-Wing Takeover of Radio. How did millions of Americans come to believe that the components of authoritarian dictatorships will better protect their freedoms than our democracy? The answers fill a long list. I've selected one. Radio. Before radio, political consensus emerged from conversations, meetings, newspapers, and the occasional political speech on the village square. With radio, a station owner could speak to the hundreds or thousands within the station's signal area. In the 1920s and 1930s, increased public awareness of the manipulative power of advertising and political propaganda. Ironically, the 1920s members of Congress were more aware of the potential dangers of radio than their successors have been. As Texas U.S. Representative Luther Johnson put it to his colleagues in 1926, American thought and politics will be at the mercy of those who operate these stations. If placed in the hands of a single selfish group, then woe be to those who dare to differ with them. The Radio Act of 1927, Communications Act of 1934, and FCC regulations constrained this potential threat to democracy. The public owned the airwaves, not broadcasters. Broadcasters needed an FCC license to use a frequency, initially limited to six months. The granting and renewal of licenses turned on whether the station's programming served the public interest. Specific FCC requirements gave meaning to those words. The Fairness Doctrine required stations to seek out local controversial issues of public importance and provide not equal time, but a range of views. If stations gave one political candidate free time, it triggered a right in opponents to an equal opportunity. Anyone attacked had a right of reply. Other regulations encouraged diversity of views. Limitations on the number of stations one licensee could operate in a single market or throughout the country. Restrictions on common ownership of newspapers and stations or concentration of station ownership within a state or region. This lasted roughly 60 years. What happened then was Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing radio talk show hosts and station owners carrying their programs saw the Fairness Doctrine and ownership restrictions as a barrier to their goal of a nationwide constant flow of unchallenged right-wing programming. They successfully persuaded enough FCC commissioners and members of Congress of their position, and the Fairness Doctrine was repealed, along with most ownership restrictions. Soon, Clear Channel owned 1,207 stations in 201 of 287 radio markets, and the top 15 right-wing conservative radio talk show personalities were putting out hours of unanswered assertions every day. Millions of Americans whose occupations were consistent with all-day radio listening were getting an overload of a conservative perspective on America in workshops and kitchens, factory floors and restaurants, tractor and semi-truck cabs, as the more moderate radio star Paul Harvey would say, and now you know the rest of the story. Nicholas Johnson served as the Federal Communications Commission Commissioner 1966-1973. to 1973. Moving on to sports. Accountability Watch Already in Motion. How Often College Football Programs Meet Goals Iowa Gave Brian Ferentz for 2023 by John Stepp. The countdown has begun, or perhaps in one Iowa football fan's case, it's better to say the account down. Iowa announced an amended contract for offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz on Monday that included designated performance objectives of winning at least seven games and averaging 25 points per game. By Tuesday, someone had created a website, BrianFerentzPointTracker.com, and a Twitter account to track how close he is to reaching the objectives. Whether he meets the goals has particularly piqued interest of fans, including the person behind the anonymously registered website, because of what is at stake. Ference's pay cut turns into a pay raise if he meets the goals outlined in his updated contract. When including his one hundred twelve dollars one time lump sum bonus, Ference would earn $962,500. His permanent salary in 2024. Would be nine hundred twenty-five thousand, still higher than his base salary of nine hundred thousand in twenty twenty-two. The contract will terminate, on the other hand, if he does not meet the objectives. An analysis of five years of NCAA data by the Gazette shows college football programs often achieve Ferentz's designated performance objectives, but it is not something to take for granted. In the five seasons not affected by COVID nineteen from twenty seventeen to twenty two teams achieved both 7-plus wins and at least 25 points per game about 51% of the time. When specifically looking at the Power 5 conferences and Notre Dame in that span, it rises to 55% of teams. Looking back at the entirety of Kirk Ferentz's tenure as head coach, Iowa has reached these benchmarks at a similar rate as the Power 5 average. In 13 of Kirk Ferentz's 23 full seasons as Iowa head coach, this again excludes the COVID-19 shortened 2020 season, Iowa has won at least seven games and averages at least 25 points per game. Brian Ferentz, Kirk's oldest son, achieved both benchmarks in his first three years as Iowa's offensive coordinator. Had COVID-19 not compressed the 2020 schedule, Iowa likely would have done so in his fourth year too. However, the Hawkeyes have come up short in the last two seasons, averaging 23.4 points per game in 2021 and 17.7 points per game in 2022. Offensively, the performance that we had last year is not going to cut it, Iowa Athletics Director Gary Barta said last week. It's not acceptable for anybody involved. As Brian Ferenc Ferenc and company aim to hit the benchmarks in 2023, he'll have some benefits that not every Power 5 team has. Iowa's defense, which led the country in yards allowed per play, has several key players expected to return in 2023. Three of four starters on the defensive line are returning, and defensive back Cooper Degene proved to be one of Iowa's best players in 2022 as a sophomore. The contract says Iowa must average at least 25 points per game. There is no distinction between offensive or defensive points. If Degene has a pick six or punt return for touchdown, for example, it would count toward Ferenc's objectives required to avoid termination. Quarterback Cade McNamara, tight end Eric All, Jr., wide receiver Seth Anderson, and offensive lineman Rusty Fifth highlight the list of incoming transfers for the Iowa offense. Meanwhile, the person behind the Brian Farrin's points tracker has another seven months before having to update the website with any changes to Iowa's scoring statistics. The fan is having some fun on Twitter before that, though. The barista at Starbucks remembered my name this morning, the account tweeted. That counts as a win, right? Edie number one boilers again a tall task. Iowa's task, Don't Look Like Saps Against the Big Maple by Mike coloss. What do you do with Zach Edie? The answer from Edie's opponents this season, not much. They may as well get on a stepladder and hand the seven foot four junior from Toronto the National Player of the Year award now. Edie is fourth in the nation in scoring 22.6 points per game and second in rebounds average. He leads the Big Ten in field goal percentage. His Purdue team is 22-2, first place in the Big Ten, and ranked number one in the nation. He's been the conference's Player of the Week six times, one shy of Evan Turner's league record set in 2010-11. His six 30.10 rebound games are more than the rest of the Big Ten players have combined. Iowa's man in the middle, six foot nine Philip What to do? What do you do to try to slow the player they call the Big Maple when your team faces the Boilermakers Thursday night in Purdue's Mackey Arena? just running him, you know, Rebecca said Tuesday, when we get aboard, just running down the court, making him use his energy. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 8th, 2023. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org anytime. Thanks for listening.